0: Well, hey, would you remain standing with me as we read the scriptures together? We're starting a new series today uh, called Kicking and Screaming, and I want to talk to you today specifically about God's love for what I'm going to call the other. And I want to talk to you about how to be a person of love in a selfish world, and uh, I hope this series helps you. Um, The goal here is that you and I would be vaccinated against the default virus of the human heart that breeds division and hate and how we can grow the kind of love that God has because, very frankly, that's the need of this moment and this hour. So I would invite you to read with me. I'll read it aloud. It'll be on the screen. We're going to read the whole chapter of Jonah, chapter 1. Maybe you heard this story before. Maybe this will be the first time, but I'll read it aloud. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. And the captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country From what people are you? And he answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. And they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and made vows to him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you so much for standing out of reverence for God's word. If you uh, remember, if you were here uh, or joining us online in December, I said, "Hey, in, in the month of, in the year of 2021, um, all year long, I'm going to preach to you about uh, holiness." And uh, this is a new series that's starting today. But the whole year is about this subject of holiness. Now, you may be very familiar with what holiness is. You may not. Um, I'll just tell you what I mean by it and what the scriptures mean by it. Holiness refers to God's transformation of your life, you know, God's work of uh, making you a different person. So, the first series of the year, we talked about, uh, out of the book of Proverbs, we called it Aspire, and that was about having a holy attitude. And uh, then we just finished up a series, Fixer Upper, on relationships. How do you have holy relationships? And this, uh, this series, we're looking at this uh, Old Testament book of Jonah, is a holy vision of people not like you. You and I need a better picture of how we think about and see people who are not like us and don't agree with us. Now, left to our own devices, here's what you and I do, just as human beings, is we splinter ourselves and we go into our own little caves that are made up of our own viewpoints. So work with me here. This is the metaphor that kind of came to my mind as I was thinking through this. Could you picture like kind of a mountainside that you can kind of traverse with paths up and down and all along those paths, all along that mountainside are these little caves. Can you, can you picture that with me? And, and that's us, is where we go into our caves and we, um, we're in our cave and uh, the people in the other caves, we, we put a label over the name of the people who are in that cave. And uh, we call them names. We're like, those are the people who are... And let's be just honest for a second. I'm going to be honest for a second. The, The label on my cave is enlightened. I see it correctly. All of you fools don't, right? So we label our caves and we stay in them and we kick out anyone who disagrees with us and we call the other people in the other caves names, right? Is that right? It's okay to say amen because I'm talking about somebody else. I'm certainly not talking about you, right? Okay. It's what Martin Buber, Martin Buber was a Jewish philosopher, lived through the Holocaust. He said there are two ways of, of thinking about people and our relationship to pe- other people. He said one way is, uh, he called it the I-it relationship. So there's, there's me, I'm an I, you know, I have dignity, I have value, I have worth. And then there are the other people that I consider they're dehumanized and they're an it. And, and here's what we're doing with left to our own devices. And listen very carefully to my words. I'm going to say it carefully. We are itting people. And if we're not careful, we will it ourselves into oblivion. And, and in so doing, we'll ignore the people that God's, God loves and we will ignore God's heart. Oh, ironically, for those of us who are people of faith... While we are thinking that we are holy. And so you and I, what we need is we need a a holy vision of people not like us. It's the other half of what Martin Bubert said is that you could then see instead of an I-it relationship to other people, you have an I, what he called an I-thou relationship. I have dignity and you have dignity. And I don't know if there is a book in the scriptures that is more fitting for this holy vision of other people than the book of Jonah. Now, if you grew up around this, uh, you went to Sunday school, you know this story. This is uh, very famously titled what? Jonah and the, the whale, right? So some of you know what I'm talking about. Whale, fish, mammal, potato, potato. Don't get hung up on the fish because this is not a story about the fish or the whale or whatever that creature was. The Hebrew is ambiguous about what it was. Um, If you can believe in the resurrection from the dead, you could go and get in gear with some kind of creature swallowing someone. But that's not even the point of the story, right? We'll talk more about it next week in chapter 2. That that animal, that that thing in the sea, is a bit character in the story. So don't don't get hung up on that. But if if you're going to understand the book of Jonah, you've got to go to the very end and read it from the end back. From the beginning. I, I love reading and, and uh, read books, growing up stories, and, and um, I would get about uh, two or three chapters in, and I would, I would feel the tension built in the story, and I would go, I wonder how this is going to turn out. And so I would flip to the back of the story, and I would read, oh, okay, so she dies, and then he lives, and oh, okay. And then that would allow me to get through the tension of the stories, kind of like at Christmas time. Um, don't tell my dad, but I would go take the presents. I would take an exacto knife, and I would slice the tape kids, listen, and uh, you pull it out of the thing, and then you can put it back in and tape it, and anyway, I did that. I admit it, but I did that when I would read books, you know, because I wanted to know the end. We kind of need to do that here. That's actually important, because it gives us the lesson of the book, or the point of the book, and the point of the book of Jonah is that you and I would share God's intent and heart for people, and you could go to the very last verse in Jonah Jonah chapter 4 verse 11 we'll put it on the screen for you this is the words of God should I he's saying to Jonah should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh we'll talk about what Nineveh is here in a second but this is the implication is that this is God's heart for every city that we're to love the people that God loves without any questions asked and and this question Jonah is the only book in the Old Testament that ends with a question from God to us it hangs over the book as the question and the whole book as we're going to see as we go through this story about Jonah is Jonah's answer to God's question should I not have concern for that great city Jonah's answer is no you you should not you should not and in a multitude of ways Jonah refuses God's heart Now, you got to understand this about these uh, prophetic books, these uh, these books in the Old Testament. They're kind of in the second half of the Old Testament. If you've delved into that, you've seen um, all the names of those different prophets. All of those prophetic books usually focus on the message that the prophet is delivering. The book of Jonah instead focuses on the person of Jonah who is refusing God's message. And the book of Jonah is about his gap between how he sees people and how God sees people. Now, I got I to gotta pause right here, uh, not let you off the hook, and say to you that this is, yes, this is about Jonah, but this is also a book about your gap and my gap, the gap between God's intent and heart for people that are not like me and my intent and heart for people who are not like me. It's a it exposes my barriers and your barriers and prejudices and distastefulness. And Jonah functions as this stand-in, and it's about the holy vision that we need and the journey we have to make to get to it. Because very frankly, the need of the hour is people who are bridge builders and not cave dwellers, right? And this is, a, this is a story of conversion, and it's about converting someone who already believes. <laughs> uh, and the, the, the question, the big giant question mark that hangs over the book is, will he be converted? Now, again, you can talk about Jonah, but this is also a question for you. Will you? Will you be converted? Now, you, there's two things that you need to understand about these Old Testament books if you're going to uh, make sense of them in the right way. If you don't, you'll misunderstand and misread the, the text. Number one about prophets. Now, I don't know what you think about prophets or what you know about prophets. Uh, today, prophets are people who have a weird YouTube channel and you subscribe and they tell you all these kinds of like, this is what's going to happen and that's going to happen and then this person and you watch out for that. And, and that's not the biblical uh, prophet. They were, stereotypically, they were advisors to kings and they were, uh, they were what one person is called a fourth teller rather than just a foreteller. In other words, they weren't predicting the future so much as they were saying, listen, this is what God's like. This is what God says. And if you keep going down this path, this is is what's going to happen to you. They were the people who, without flinching, told the truth. So you got to get that picture in your head about who the prophets are supposed to be. And then you've got to understand the narrative. These, uh, I have such great appreciation uh, that grows all the time for the narratives in the scriptures. We looked last week at the, uh, the story of Joseph, and this is another narrative in the, the, the scripture that's just packed with all this meaning. It's, it's beautifully woven together. It's just a great story, and so there's layers of meaning to everything that's said. It just, just gets right at us. So let's, let's start right at the beginning and make sure we understand all that's happening in this story so we can apply it to our life. Word of the Lord, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Now this would be, for the first people who heard this, this would be like saying to them, now in other words, ladies and gentlemen, this man needs no introduction because all the other prophets, there's a, a list of where they came from and who, who they belong to and what they accomplished, but, but here it's just kind of like, we know all this about Jonah. You could go back to Second Kings 14, 25, which is the, the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles are historical records of the kings of israel and their actions and you find out that that jonah son of amittai was a prophet during the reign of jeroboam who was jeroboam jeroboam was the king of israel for 40 plus years and this was this was the summary statement of his life i mean imagine this being on your tombstone right Uh, Jeroboam for 40 years all that he accomplished the writer says and Jeroboam did what was evil in the sight of the Lord imagine being at the tombstone of that person and being like wow they were awful and uh, at the same time contemporaries of Jonah were the prophet Amos Amos gets quoted by Martin Luther King let justice roll down like waters you know that whole famous passage that he quotes in his I have a dream speech Amos is saying to Jeroboam, hey, Jeroboam, you're not letting justice roll down. And Hosea, if you've read that uh, prophet in the Old Testament, who married a prostitute as a a way of saying, listen, you're this unfaithful to God. He's saying, Jeroboam, you're creating conditions where people are not faithful to God. And Jonah, while Amos and Hosea are saying, hey, Jeroboam, stop. Jonah is in support of Jeroboam and and all of Jeroboam's aggressive military campaigns. So anybody who read Verse 1, Jonah, the son of Amittai, would have have said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's that super patriotic, highly partisan nationalist guy. Yeah, we know who we're talking about. Which then makes verse 2 so incredibly stark. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. What in the world do we know about Nineveh? Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. If you're a history buff, you know that Assyria at one point was one of the world's Superpowers and the way they conquered was by absolute domination. If you're a history buff, you've you know about this. So some uh, world superpowers, well, the way they conquer is they go in and there, there'll be some acts of violence, and then what they effectively do is they assimilate the population into their population, either by occupying the territory or resettling people. It's what the Roman Empire did. They would go in and win some wars, and then they would resettle people. The Babylonian Empire, one of the world's superpowers, did the same thing. The story of Daniel in the lion's den is they were resettled into Babylon. Great Britain had that policy. That's kind of America's uh, foreign policy to a degree. But here's what the Assyrians would do. Instead of assimilating people, they would decimate people. It was a scorched earth kind of a policy. So I'm going to be a little bit graphic here because you've got to kind of get the sense of how brutal... Um, they were. This is just in the historical record. You can go look it up. Um, But one of the things they would do is they would go in and they would take you. Once they captured you, they would cut off your legs. They would cut off one of your arms and then they would shake the hand of your remaining arm as you died and as they laughed in your face. Or if they captured your family, you might be the one sole survivor in your family and they would cut off the heads of everybody else in your family and they would hand them to you and then they would have you force you to parade through the streets or they would flay you, uh, stretch your skin out on the walls. One historian said that they were, without a doubt, a terrorist state. I mean, there's just no other way to think about the Assyrians. And in 722, you can look up the history of this, they invaded and they destroyed northern Israel. So this this is the enemy of God's people. And God is saying to Jonah, this nationalist, patriotic man, go preach to them. Go preach to the enemy. So what does Jonah do? Verse 3, But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship and he got on the ship and he fled the Lord. I was in Joppa uh, a year ago. got some pictures we'll put here on the screen for you of the port at Joppa. It's just outside the modern-day city of Tel Aviv. It's not very big. You can see the seawall over here. There's another picture coming up here in just a second, guys. Uh, just another angle of that. And then you can see here uh, a picture from Joppa back to the modern-day city of tel aviv that's where he goes he goes to that port right there it's been there for a a long time thousands of years and um and and he gets on a boat to tarshish well where's tarshish well tarshish is like he looks down the itinerary and he goes where's the last stop i'd like a ticket to that place please and so he gets on the boat and he goes to the last stop now why why does he do that why does he run well i mean there's kind of a practical thing isn't there I mean, it would kind of be like a rabbi standing up on the streets of Berlin in 1942. It's not going to go so well, right? But there's a deeper level that you don't find out about until chapter 4, because Jonah knows when we get to chapter 4 in a few weeks. Jonah knows. He says, I knew that if I went and I did what you said, I knew what you were like, and I knew you would be gracious to them, and I didn't want to do it. He hates it, and he doesn't have God's heart to him. They're in an it, and they live in one of the other caves. And so Jonah says, no, thank you. And he runs away from God. Now, if you grew up around, uh, this, around the church, you've heard that phrase, you know, run, running away from God. And, and usually we think about that in terms of someone who's um, not a believer. They're not an orthodox. They don't have orthodox doctrine. They're not religious. They don't have real faith in God. They're, you know, they're running from God. And and here's Jonah, an Orthodox believer who has all of the right information, understands what he's supposed to be doing, has the right position, and here he is running away from God. So what in the world is he doing? Why why is he running away from God? What what do we learn from Jonah about running away from God? Well, you might be kind of surprised to find out that Jesus in the New Testament and Paul in the New Testament outline how it is that people run away from God. And both of them say, that there are two ways you can run away from God. One is kind of the way that you might expect, and the other is kind of counterintuitive. So the Apostle Paul, when he writes his letter to the Christians in Rome, the book of Romans in the New Testament, um, he describes in chapter 1 and chapter 2 ways people run away from God. In chapter 1, it's just the list that you, would, you and I would expect. You know, but people do all these horrible things and these terrible things. And, and he summarizes it in, in verse 29. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness. It's what you and I think of when someone runs away from God. Yeah, they're off doing all that crazy stuff. They're a person who rejects God outright. And, and you might go, well, hey, stop running, sinner. You know, Find some solace in Jesus. But then Paul says, that's not the only way that you can run from God. And in chapter two, he turns his sights on all of the religious people who grew up in church and went to Sunday school and were in a group and taught Sunday school classes. And, and he says, listen, you too can be spiritually lost. And he counts the ways that they've used religion to control outcomes. And in uh, verse 17 of chapter two, he says, you rely on the law and you boast in God. You're like, I'm super religious. And if you know Paul, Paul is telling you in chapter 2, he's like, that's my story. That was me. That's how I ran from God. And then he summarizes it in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. And he says, there's no one righteous, not one. No Sunday school teacher who seeks God. No group leader who understands. No pastor who gets it right. Now, you might say, well, now, Scott, aren't you being a little bit harsh? I mean, where, where, where would Paul get an idea like this? Well, you know where he got it from he got it from Jesus. Famous story Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15, we refer to it as the story of the prodigal son. Maybe you know this story. There's a father and he's got two sons and his younger son comes to him. Um, This is the the kid in Romans chapter 1 that Paul picks up on. And he says, in effect, listen, dad, I hate you. Um, I I don't want anything to do with you. Um, Give me what is mine. I'm leaving. And he does. He goes, he takes his inheritance and he squanders it. I mean, and he's spiritually lost. He's at a distance from God. And how is he lost? Well, he's rejected his father. But that's just one son, right? We, we usually focus on that as the son, that that's the way you run away from God. You know, don't be like that younger son. You know, he's running away from God. Don't, don't be like that. But Jesus told a story about two sons and both of them are lost because um, the older son is Romans chapter 2. That older son is spiritually lost and at a distance from God. And how is he at a distance from God? Well, you find out when you read Luke chapter 15 that he doesn't reject his father as much as he rejects his father's heart. And to him, his brother is an it who lives in the wrong cave. And in the language of Jonah chapter 4 verse 11, God's heart for every person in every city you could say it this way. Uh, should, I, should, I ha- should I not have concern for that younger brother? His father comes to him and says, listen, all I have is yours. And shouldn't I have concern for that younger brother of yours? And the older brother says, no! He did it all wrong. Don't you get it? What, what, are, you, what are you doing? Now, which path is Jonah using to run away from God? He's using the path that Paul lays out in Romans 2. He's the older brother. He can't reconcile the mercy of God with the justice of God, because we all know, right, God is supposed to smite the bad people and bless the good people who are like me. And when the real God shows up, as we're going to see as we look through this series, it drives Jonah to anger and despair, and he starts to question God. And he says, God, how can you be merciful to people who are as wicked as the Ninevites? Come on. And how can you be just if you're showing mercy? And he, he uses his religion as a cover for his hatred and his division. Now, here's, again, I told you Jonah is a stand-in for you and me. So how do we avoid doing the same thing? I want you to notice uh, two things that are offered to Jonah that he just completely walk. I mean, just goes right around them. He just foregoes them, and there are two things, two shifts, if we're going to avoid a Jonah heart uh, that we need to put in place. Here's the first thing is you and I have to see God at work. We have to understand that God's always at work. God's always doing something. The theological language for this is uh, prevenient grace. The, the grace that goes before. Some other traditions call it common grace. It's the grace of God that's always at work. You don't go somewhere and take God with you. When you go on a mission trip, you're not taking God with you because God's not there. And, and, and you know, thanks to your great magnanimous heart, he, you now have brought God to people. No, no. God is already there and you're working with him. This is God's world and God loves it. Even the parts that we don't, There aren't people that God doesn't love. There are only people that God loves. This is prevenient grace. This is the and Jonah sidesteps it completely. So verse 4 says, The Lord sent a great wind on the sea and a violent storm arose. And and listen, you, you know, right, that that sin running from God carries with it a storm. Now I'm not trying to say that all the storms in your life are caused by sin, but I am trying to say every time we run from God, it creates a storm. And, and But watch how, watch how the provenient grace happens for Jonah. These, these sailors, now I know we're in the middle of the country, and I know you're probably not around sailors a lot, uh, but I've been around some sailors. We've lived in some places where sailors live, and in fact, uh, I pastored a guy who uh, captained a really large ship, and he would tell me stories about what sailors do to people they don't like when they're in international waters, and they have no police force that can enforce what they do and they can't be held accountable for what they do and and when someone puts them in harm's way do you know what a sailor does to that person overboard swims with the fishes and they don't right you see that there's this violent storm comes up and they don't kill him in fact they come to him and they ask him what to do and they say well who's responsible for all this and so they ask him all these questions about his identity. And, and what he does is he answers with his ethnicity. And he says, well, I'm a Hebrew. Here's the implication. I'm a Hebrew. That means you're not. And so his prejudices shaped what he accepted as normal. Now, let me, let me give you a couple of examples here. And um, I just need you to go with me on these examples. And, and this might not be you at all. And I'm not trying to say that, but I'm just trying to use these as examples. You might be the kind of person who's grown up around all of this. And, um, you know, a guy like me shows up, and um, I don't wear a suit every Sunday. And In fact, I don't ever wear a suit unless you die um, or get married. And, um, and you might go, I-, I don't know if I can take you seriously. Because I'm not sure you're taking this seriously. Because that's what you're supposed to do. And, and my, my retort back to you would be something like, well, Jesus didn't wear a suit. I mean, do you want me to wear what Jesus wore? I mean, I can do that. But... And, and at that moment, what you would be doing is allowing your prejudices to shape what you accept as normal, and your loyalty to some other identity is superseding loyalty to God's heart. Or maybe you, it's silent for you, and you say something like, well, you don't, you don't see masks the way that I do, and you're wrong. and You don't get the big picture, and you're deceived. And then you might say, well, yeah, you're using examples like that, and you're picking on me, and you're poking me. No, I, I'm trying to point out how you get a Jonah could could we pause right here for a second and just notice together what's happening in the church at large right now? I'm not talking just about us. We're in this moment when people are calling each other names based on politics and viewpoints and understandings of things and and in, I remember the day when we would talk about people who were different than us and we would we would say things like those are the people that we're supposed to reach and those are the people that God loves and and, and not, we're not supposed to hate them, but we've gotten into this moment where we're calling them names. And I'm, I'm, I'm asking questions. I'm like, well, I'm sitting over here going, do we not see that we're excluding the very people we're supposed to be reaching? How are we missing that? And, and a lot of us are doubling down on a Jonah spirit and saying, well, I'm this and you are not. And we are itting people. And we are labeling the cave that they came from. And we're not having God's heart for them. And, and, and listen, if that's you, I got to tell you, you're on the boat to Tarshish. You know, God, don't make me talk to them. And don't make me see them as human. And God, you know we're right and they're wrong. And God, there's no way you're at work there. Smite them. Smite the liberals. <laughs> you got to see God at work. Second thing is you've gotta, you and I have got to be converted you and I have got to be converted. Jonah, in, chat, in verse 12, when the storm comes up and they don't know what to do, he says, here's how you solve the storm, is you you pick me up and you throw me into the sea. That's how this gets solved. And Jonah understood that uh, some kind of sacrifice had to happen and he was misguided in doing it. And uh, honestly, he probably is writing the story of his own conversion. That's how we know all these these stories, and I, I hope I hope it's from the perspective of him saying, ah, I finally got it. But he writes some embarrassing things about himself, and and, and here he's, he's saying, I'm going to sacrifice myself, and it doesn't completely work. We'll talk more about it next week, because it it calms the external storm, but it doesn't calm his internal storm. But there's a sense in which we look at Jonah and what he did by throwing himself over the side of the ship, and we look ahead, because we're Christians, and so we look at Jesus when we want to understand things and and so he's kind of a type of Jesus Jesus does the work on the cross like that's what the cross is, is Jesus enters into the storm of human injustice and unrighteousness and unholiness and sin, he just goes right into the storm he throws himself into the storm on your behalf and sacrifices himself for you and so that there's peace both on the outside and peace for you on the inside And, and when you begin to see what the cross, what Jesus does on the cross for you and for me, it begins to change how you see yourself and it makes you open to being converted. Now, I, I think there's more than one conversion that a person needs. I think there are at least three that every person has to go through. The first one is, is that you have to be converted personally. You, you, In the words of Jesus, you have to be born again. I'm going to, on Easter Sunday, we're going to start a new series called Questions About God, and I'm going to talk specifically about that. How do you have a relationship with God? Well, Jesus in John chapter 3 says that you have to be born again, and that's the start of personal change, and it moves me to change my life, and I discovered that God wants me. That's the first conversion. The second conversion is you have to be converted to seeing that there are other people and that you're made to be in relationship with other people and it changes how you see people and it moves you toward people and you discover that God wants you close to people. That's why we think it's important that you be in a group. Some other people need to help you share the load of your journey. But then this, this last conversion, this is the conversion of the story of Jonah, is that you and I have to be converted to God's father heart for cities and for sons and for daughters. It's a change where I begin to share the heart of God and it moves me outside of my comfort zone and I discover that God wants me to be close to the needs of the other who live in a different cave and see it differently than me. I think a lot of us suffer from, I I made up this name, but I think a lot of us suffer from uh, what I call graduate Christianity syndrome. Graduate Christianity syndrome. It goes like this. You know, you've kind of been around this for a long time, and um, the metaphor is education. You know, you you, you go through elementary school and high school, and, and then you go to college, and then you get a graduate degree. And here you are at the, you know, you've completed all this, all this information's been given to you and these experiences and, and you're here and you're not quite sure what's next and graduate Christianity syndrome means you're standing here and you've got all this information you know all this stuff about the Bible and you, you knew what I meant when I talked about provenient grace oh I know all about that I can tell you the theologians who wrote about it and when anybody talks about some experience that they had back over here you're like oh yeah 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 I, I've done that I've been there I had someone I remember we had someone special speaker come and they talked about this and you stay here, and often you judge the people who aren't far as, as far along as you are. And here's what I'm trying to suggest to you, is that you, maybe this is you. You've done all the stuff, right? And you, you're here, not sure what to do next. Well, here's what you do. You walk back over here, and you sign up as a guide. And you say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go back to the beginning, to the places where I started, and I'm going to put my arm around somebody that doesn't see it the way that I do, and I'm going to love them. Because see, when you're over here, you just look at these experiences and you go, yeah, I remember when I did that. Yeah, I remember when I did that. But when you're over here and you're a guide and you're helping someone, you look ahead and you go, I can't wait until they experience that. I can't wait until they see that. I can't wait until I get to help show them that. And you become a guide. You put your arm around them. See, this, Jonah never got here. Jonah stayed over there. And I'm simply, I'm simply doing my best right now. To ask you to be converted to God's Father heart for our city. For people who don't see it the way we do. Who don't have our politics. Who don't have our lifestyle. don't have our values. I want that for you. I want you to have a Jesus heart and not a Jonah heart. I want us to have a Jesus heart and not a Jonah heart. I want to invite you to stand with me, would you? And I'm going to pray for you. And then we're going to leave you with a blessing, Lord. We uh, stand in need of uh, we stand in need of grace. We stand in need of, of your kindness. We stand in need of your help, Lord. We um, a lot of us have just been around this stuff for so long. Uh, We're deep into graduate Christianity syndrome. We know all the stuff. We know all the answers. Oh, God, move our hearts to go back to the beginning of our journey and serve as a guide. We want to sign up again, but this time as a guide, as a fellow traveler who's discovered grace and how good it is, and we want to share that with someone along the way. Oh, God, give us that kind of heart sees people in that way. Oh, God, that we would have your heart. We would understand, should, should you not love this great city? Oh, yes. Let that be the answer of our heart. So God, forgive us for the ways that we've taken our, our understandings of things and we've baptized them and given them language that makes it like we're holy because we have a certain viewpoint on a, an issue that's not that important to you forgive us for that. We've missed the mark, and we want to do this differently now. So Lord, give us a Jesus heart and not a Jonah heart. Replace that that heart that would resist and say no and label people with a heart that welcomes and loves. Do that for us individually and as a church. Pray this in your name and all God's people who wanted that for themselves, Said.